Genesis is only eight verses. They are taken from the 45th chapter of the book of Genesis. Joseph could stand it no longer. Out of all of you, he cried out to his attendants, out all of you, and he was left alone with his brothers, and then he wept aloud, and his sobs could be heard throughout the palace, and the news was quickly carried to Pharaoh's throne. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't say a word. They were so stunned with surprise. Come over here, he said. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But don't be angry with yourselves that you did this to me, for God did it. He sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. These two years of famine will grow to seven, during which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God has sent me here to keep you and your families alive so that you will become a great nation. Yes, it was God who sent me here, not you. And he has made me a counselor to Pharaoh and manager of an entire nation, ruler of all the land of Egypt. And then one verse, verse 20 of chapter 50. As far as I am concerned, God turned into good what you meant for evil. For he brought me to this high position I have today so that I could save the lives of many people. May God bless to us a lesson from this part of his word. Amen. We have been thinking about some great trials that men in the Bible have faced. Last week we thought about trials that Daniel faced and we saw in that splendid and noble character a granite-like consistency in his trust and faith in God. Today we deal with another of the Old Testament figures whose splendor is remarkable. A few years ago, one of the distinguished uh, professors at Yale University, professor of literary criticism, J.W. Aldrich, wrote a, an intriguing book to me. The title of the book was In Search of Heresy. In Search of Heresy. Now the book deals with this. It says that out of 5,000 novels that are published each year in America, very few of them will live as long as six months or a year, and very few as long as five years, and that none, as far as he can see, show any pretense toward that greatness which would cause them to live for 50 or 100 years or more. Now, the literary critic says this. Why is it that in an age when men travel in outer space, when they go to the moon, in an age where there are great conflicts of ideological loyalty, such as conflicts with communism and conflicts with free enterprise, why is it that so little real literature is being produced that will last? He says that it is because of an absence of absolute moral standards. That whereas there was a time when there was black and there was white, and there was a conflict that existed here, and a contrast and a conquest, that now we have made the moral scene so gray, so limp, and so meaningless, that you do not have this conflict and contrast. 
So, we turn back to the pages of the Bible. Here we find an amazing story. Any literary critic who picked up the story of Joseph and read it, in a modern translation and with feeling, could see it grip a little boy and keep his attention, or an older person and keep his attention, because it has all of the elements of drama about it. It's the story. The story of Joseph that we have to do with today and its lessons for our life. First of all, we are told that Joseph was a dreamer. There is a trite saying that all the world loves a dreamer. But really, all the world does not love a dreamer who talks all the time about his dreams and never allows anyone else to talk about their dreams. And here we have the beginning of a fault in Joseph. He was favored by his father who made an error in singling him out and loving him more than his other son. He was his favorite son of one of his favorite wives, and so he singles him out. And right away does him a great disservice by giving him a distinctive coat of many colors or of an unusual cut so that his brothers will be jealous and envious of him and he sows the seeds of dissension immediately in his own family. And then Joseph, and it must be said to Joseph's credit that he was only 17 years old when he began to tell these dreams. And some of us who are twice or three or four times 17 are still guilty of talking all the time and not allowing anyone else to tell their dreams. Joseph goes out to tell his brothers in his coat of many colors, that there are sheaves shocked up in the fields, and how all of the other shocks of sheaves bow down, and yet his is the one that stands upright, and they all bow to him. This, of course, does not incur the favor of his brothers, but makes them very angry with him. And then he goes on to tell about another one of his dreams a dream in which all of, the, of the, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, which mean his, ten brother, his brothers and sister, his brothers and his mother and father, all bow down to him. This, again, does not strike a note of popularity. But we must remember he is 17 years old. He is making a mistake uh, in saying these things, I think. Uh, but later God vindicates what happens here as time goes on. Uh, he talks about his dreams all the time. And so one day his brothers see him when he is coming out to inspect their shepherding of the sheep. And they say, come, here comes this master dreamer. Come and let us kill him and toss him into a pit. Oh, what a great test this is, that he is tossed into the pit. Because if he had never been tossed into the pit, he probably would never have come to his senses. But they toss him into an old well, and down in the bottom of that well, this boy who had been shielded from work by his father's partiality and singled out by his father for great honors and favors, now is thrown into a pit. And he must be terribly afraid. He must be making many prayers to God and he must be wondering about what has happened to him. Of course, you know the story, how that one of his brothers, who is money-minded, says, why do we put him to death? Here comes a 
group of slave traders, let's sell him to these slave traders. And he sells him to the slave traders, and they take Joseph off into Egypt. The first trial that Joseph faced was a trial of hardship. A trial of hardship. He had been well favored and had spoken often about his dreams. And then he is face to face with this tremendous hardship. If you could imagine that boy going along, lashed with his hands together, tied as a slave would be tied, and with some slave driver in back of him with a whip cracking it across his back, and him falling to the desert sands and going on into Egypt. His father had ill-prepared him for such hardship as this. He is faced with the test of hardship. But we are told in Scripture that when he is brought into Egypt and he is sold as a slave, that God is with him. That God is with him for he trusts in God. That God is with him for he trusts in God. That God is with him in this time of hardship and he trusts in him. Now, if we are willing, hardship can be a tremendous blessing to us. It can teach us lessons that we will not learn any other way. There are many lessons that are to be learned from examples that we see in the world about us of people who have faced and overcome hardships. Most of us who have thrilled to classical music at any time know that Beethoven became stone deaf, and that when he had composed his Ninth Symphony, a tremendous piece of music, and it was played in Vienna for the first time, that Beethoven, in leading the orchestra and having led them all the way through the Ninth Symphony, could not hear himself what they were playing. And when he had come to the conclusion of that symphony, and the audience burst into a riot of frenzied applause and thunderous ovation and wave after wave after wave of applause, Beethoven himself could not see them. But one of the assistants had to come and turn him around so that he could face the audience and see the reaction. And it wasn't until he was turned about that he knew what a success the Ninth Symphony was. He had overcome a tremendous defect in hearing. I love sports. And of all the baseball players, one of my great favorites is Lou Gehrig. He is in baseball's Hall of Fame as the greatest first baseman who ever played baseball. They used to call Lou Gehrig the Iron Horse. And do you know why they called Gehrig the Iron Horse? They called Lou Gehrig that because he had the incredible record of playing 2,000 consecutive baseball games without missing one single game. He played baseball games when he had a cold. He had base played baseball games when he had fever. Once at the Mayo Clinic, when they were studying Lou Gehrig's hands under x-ray, they found that his fingers and thumbs and hand bones had been fractured in 17 different places. 
And yet in spite of the 17 different fractures, Lou Gehrig could go out into Yankee Stadium and play in a baseball game. Many of us can remember seeing the film in which James Stewart stars as Lou Gehrig. Based upon his life, this motion picture showed how when at last Lou Gehrig is crippled with a disease that begins to break him down, how in the clubhouse, when he stoops to tie his baseball shoes, he topples over on his head, and his teammates all look the other way, none of them stooping to come and help him, lest they insult him, because they knew what a, a tremendous spirit Lou Gehrig had. Finally, when his disease had progressed to the point that it would only be months until he would be dead, Lou Gehrig had to retire from baseball. They had a Lou Gehrig day in Yankee Stadium. And the entire stands were jammed with 61,808 fans who went through a turnstile count. The Postmaster General of the United States read a tribute to Lou Gehrig. Mayor LaGuardia read a tribute to Lou Gehrig. The crowd stood when Lou Gehrig came to the microphone and they grew quiet and still when Lou Gehrig spoke. And that simple speech that he made when he took off his baseball cap must be one of the examples of simple, effective oratory. These are his exact words. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a guy who got a bad break. Yet I want you to know that I consider myself to be the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And he thanked them. Such was the spirit of Gary. And we take example from it. Here is a man, Joseph, put into the trial of hardship and sold as a slave. He could have bickered with God, but he did not. Sheltered though he was as a youth, he rises to the occasion and God makes him strong. And then he comes into his second temptation. He was, of, co of course, sold as a slave to a captain of Pharaoh's special forces, a man by the name of Potiphar. He took Joseph into his home, and he saw in Joseph right away an excellent spirit, and the scriptures say of this man Potiphar that he saw in Joseph that the spirit of his God, that is Joseph's God, was with him, and that he had an excellent spirit. Joseph was so faithful and dependable and well uh, at his work that the affairs of the household of Potiphar ran smoothly and his administrative capabilities began to shine. Potiphar's crops flourished. Potiphar's business interests prospered and he had every right to be proud of the bargain that he had made that day when he bought that Hebrew slave and made him captain over his palace. But here, at the height of this success, 
Joseph is faced with another temptation. The Egyptians had no high standard of morality such as Hebrews had. And the Egyptian women were notorious for their sexual exploits. And Potiphar's wife cast her eyes, Scripture tells us, upon Joseph, for he was a handsome and attractive youth. And she sought him to commit immorality with her. And Joseph's reply to her in his steadfastness is notable. He says, God forbid that I should do this wickedness and sin against God and against my master. He put the priorities in their right place, a sin against God and a sin against my master. When she was insistent, Joseph ran from her clutches and would not succumb to that temptation. How Victorian this must seem to a lot of people today. But the first sign of a rotten civilization is an exaggerated, loose emphasis upon sex. Unless we have this discipline such as the iron discipline of this man, we won't have any great country. I don't care who is president or what the gross national product is or anything else. But young men and young women, determine in your heart, no matter who is faithless or untrue to God, you will be true to him. And here is an example. Now let me say just this briefly about temptation, facing temptation. First of all, the sexual instinct in itself is not a sin. And you must not feel guilty simply because of the animal impulse that is within you. God put it there for a very good reason. But he means for it to be controlled. Second of all, temptation in itself is not a sin. Temptation in itself is not a sin. Thirdly, Joseph here did not fall under temptation because he took some common sense practical means. He simply ran. Paul in the New Testament says flee fornication. That means that there are sometimes I have people who come to me and want to pray about certain things that are just downright sinful. There ain't any need to pray about it. Joseph didn't need to say to Potiphar's wife, let's pray about this. He knew what the answer was. If you ever get in a situation like this, you do like Joseph did and run a mile down the road and then pray. Your prayer will be a lot more effective. Some of the best ways to deal with temptation is distance. Run, then think about it, then pray about it. And that's what Joseph did. Well, of course, you know the story, how this woman lied to her husband and slandered Joseph, and he was cast into prison. And again, his wrists feel the bite of iron as manacles are placed upon them. Now in prison, he could very well have said, God, is this the way you treat your servants? I tried to be pure and I tried to be clean, and here I am in this filthy prison. But Joseph does not do this, for God is with him there in prison. God is with him there in prison. He is testing his servant, and his servant will come through the test because he does not bicker with God, but he accepts the challenge of the test through which he is passing in prison. 
You know the story about how dreams come into play again? There is a wine taster to Pharaoh the king, and there is a baker to Pharaoh, who apparently because of some conspiracy in the palace have been placed in prison. They both dream dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams. One of the dreams meant death to the baker. One of the dreams meant life and restoration to the wine taster, the butler. And the wine taster said to Joseph, because you've interpreted this dream for me, I promise I won't forget you. And the first thing he did was forget Joseph when he got out. But later on one day when Pharaoh had a strange dream of how seven uh, cows that were uh, healthy had come up out of the river Nile, and uh, then how seven lean, skinny cows came up out of the river Nile and de devoured the seven healthy ones. And he couldn't figure out his dream. And then the servant of Pharaoh, the wine taster, said, Today I remember my sin. I remember a man in prison, a Hebrew, whose name is Joseph, and he can interpret the dream. They send to the prison. Joseph shaves, and Joseph comes before the king, and he interprets his dream. He tells him how there will be seven years of great abundance of crops and then seven years of famine. And the king listens to this brainy, thoughtful man. And when Joseph says to him, you had better appoint a farm administrator and devise some program and gather in the surplus and use it carefully because famine is coming, then the king says, well, what better man could I get than you? This shall be your job. And he makes Joseph to be second to him in the realm so that whenever Joseph's chariot goes down the road, there are people who bow the knee and there are people who say, Hail Joseph! And there are people who say, Joseph's chariot is coming for he has about his neck a golden chain, the emblem of power and authority. And he has upon himself the finest of apparel and he is second only to Pharaoh in the land and he supervises the land. This is the third test that he entered into. He entered into a test of hardship, a test of temptation, and then he entered into a test of success and prosperity. It is often true that prosperity will take away a faith that had been born in adversity. And one of the greatest tests of character will come to people who have money are people who have positions of great authority and power. They have temptations that are very great, and all of us have some money and some power, and all of us are responsible to God for the way in which we use them. Well, here again, Joseph remains faithful and true to his God. And you know the story and how it ends, how that when famine began to spread throughout the land and old Jacob's sons are all now suffering as a result of starvation and hardship. They must resort to go to Egypt to buy their food to stay alive. And here is their brother whom they had sold into slavery. And you know how he tests them and the story how it ends, how Joseph one day calls them all in and breaks down in sobbing and in tears in their presence.
and is reconciled to his brothers and they unto him. And how God's purpose is being worked out in this all, that out of that family of Jacob, there should come into Egypt a family which will go out of Egypt a nation. And that nation still exists to this very day. And how God is working his purposes out in history. How the Messiah is born into the world through that nation. And this Joseph, how he stood that test. And what he said to his brothers is something that we ought to bear in mind in our hearts. As far as I am concerned, God turned into good what you meant for evil. For he, that is God, brought me to this high position I have today so that I could save the lives of many people. He stood the test of prosperity and success because he reckoned that it had come from God. A few years ago, I was down in Florida and I nearly got drowned. I was fishing with a friend of mine, the Sebastian Inlet. I'll never forget it. We really started catching fish and we became so absorbed that the tide was running out and the and running towards some very dangerous, treacherous breakers uh, in an inlet where many, many people had drowned. We just simply seemed to be catching them just as fast as we could throw out a baited hook. But we became so absorbed in our fishing that the anchor began to slip. And a man up on the a high embankment screamed to us as loud as he could and yelled, Hey! and pointed to the breakers. And we turned about and saw that we were about to be overwhelmed by breakers. What had happened was that while we were engrossed in fishing, the anchor was slipping. Mariners have an expression in which they speak of a sheet anchor, an anchor that is thrown out to keep one in a time of emergency from slipping and falling into danger. One Christian sailor, an old man of God who had come through a vile and wicked life to a faith in Jesus Christ that had transformed his life and had made the Bible a new book to him, said, I have three sheet anchors that have kept me in every emergency, that one of them is Romans 8:28, that all things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose and that all the troubles who, that hit me are somehow working out the purposes of God in my life. He said, my second sheet anchor is this, that him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out, so that when I think of my past life, I know that the call of the Savior to me to salvation is true and good. The third sheet anchor, he said, is this, he is able to save unto the uttermost all of those who come unto God by him. Beyond uttermost is sheer blank annihilation. That means that anyone, no matter who he is, no matter what he has done, no matter if he has failed all three of these tests, the test of hardship and the test of temptation and the test of success or power, if he is willing, God, will save him and make him what he ought to be through the power of his son Jesus Christ and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit.
who conforms us into his image. Let us stand in prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, you know our hearts better than we know them. And your word and what you have recorded in your word is meant to instruct us and to aid us in our lives. Therefore, we bless you for its power. And we pray that you will help us to keep in mind those things which have been prompted by your Holy Spirit so that in the face of hardship or temptation or success and prosperity, we may be loyal and true to thee. For those who have tried and failed, help them to remember the gracious words of Jesus that he is willing to save unto the uttermost those who will come to him, and that him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.